Are you confused or disheartened by the mainstream media's portrayal of beef? Would you like to understand how well-managed cattle can be a huge step in solving our climate and health problems? Do you long for more nuance in the discussion on how to create sustainable food for our future? Today on the podcast, we welcome Nicolette Harm Nyman, the author of the book Defending Beef. We talk about how the key to creating a sustainable future can be found by looking back to our food and farming heritage. She explains the flaw in the global science reports we all hear about. She shares how she moved from being a 30-year vegetarian back to eating meat. And we talk about the importance of nourishment from real food and hear how Nicolette creates and sustains that for her own family. As well as being an author, Nicolette is a mother, a lawyer and a rancher. She has an incredible head for science, but she has her fingers in the soil and her knife on the chopping board every day in her kitchen. There is so much wisdom in this beautiful conversation. Join us. Welcome to the Ancestral Kitchen Podcast with Allison, a European town dweller in central Italy, and Andrea living on a newly created family farm in Northwest Washington State, USA. Pull up a chair at the table and join us as we talk about eating, cooking, and living with ancient ancestral food wisdom in a modern world kitchen. So hello Andrea and hello Nicolette, our guest today. Thank you ever so much for coming onto the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. So we have a wonderful guest today, a mother, a rancher, an attorney and an author, Nicolette Hahn Neiman, who is the author of two books, uh, Defending Beef, which is subtitled The Ecological and Nutritional Case for Meat, and the other book is Righteous Pork Chop, Finding a life and good food beyond factory farms. The first one, Defending <laughs> Beef, has recently been revised and reprinted. So if you do read it, just as Andrew and I have just done, look out for the, the second edition. This is Defending Beef is yeah, the is the book we're gonna be concentrating on um, and asking Colette to talk about. And having just finished it. It was an astounding book. Um, not only does it systematically and thoroughly address every charge put up for avoiding farming and eating beef from both an environmental viewpoint and a health perspective. Um, and in that section of the book, it explains why each of those charges is just not true. And very often the complete opposite is true of that which is portrayed by the mainstream media. But as well as being incredibly well supported and detailed, it's really an engaging read. It's obvious, Nicolette, that you are in the soil with the animals, <laughs> feeding your family and dealing with the question of how to live well, live well in this world every day. Yes. So really, because it's got those two sides, it, it fits so well with what Andrea and I are trying, the work we're trying to put out through the podcast. So... We're really excited to 
to dig into some of the themes oh, with great. you today. Thank, Thank you. you. I love that introduction so much. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, even I, Alison, as much time as you and I spend in this space when I read this book, I was still floored. There was things that Nicolette said, I'll bet you believe that. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I, yeah, I guess I did believe that. I didn't even realize. It just, it's, it's a revelation. Right. Well, so. to me, the big challenge was trying to be very, as my background uh, in colleges as a biologist, and then I went to law school and practiced law for 10 years. So I have a very deep training in, you know, digging into the facts. And um, at the same time, I also am a big reader, and I don't like to read stuff that's too dry, right? So I was trying to um, create right. a book that was readable and engaging. So I'm very happy that you both found it to be so. Oh, but also you completely did that. Thank you, but yeah. but very grounded in facts and you know and credible facts because so mm. much of what I think people are struggling with these days is sifting through this flood of information that's coming at yeah. us from so many. So we're bombarded with information. Mm -hmm. You know, it, for most of human history, people struggled with not having information. <laughs> and now we're yeah. all struggling with right. this, you know, tsunami of information that we're just bombarded with. And we have to, the, the challenge is to parse through it and find what's credible. And that's what I tried to do for this book. So, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Well, that was excellently done. And I actually did say that to Gary. It's funny that you mentioned that as one of your goals because I was reading this and I said, this feels like the kind of book that should be boring <laughs> to read, but it's Good. not. And as much information as is coming at me, you, you know, but it all came in such a living context and so vibrantly illustrated. Um, it never for a moment oh, is it dull. So readers are going to love <laughs> yeah, it. Right. Completely. I was just going to say, the first question we always ask our guest is, what's the last thing you ate before jumping on the well, podcast? Well, in the mornings, I always just have coffee, so I didn't eat anything this morning. But last night for dinner, I had a simple meal of um, sausage, no bun. Uh, the sausage is from Framani, which is uh, our favorite brand. It was a company started by Paul Bertoli here in the Bay Area. He used to be the chef at Chez Panisse, so you can imagine he makes great sausage. <laughs> and, oh, yeah. And then... Um, <laughs> Just a salad of local greens, and and that's it. Simple but delicious. Yeah. Sounds great. Do you dress? Yeah, do you I dress always your salad? put. I mean, occasionally I do something else, but ninety nine percent of the time it's just I have a huge assortment of vinegars, and um, mm -hmm. I love this uh, company, California based again. Uh, o, it's called, and it's they make. Uh, we read about it in um, uh, Zingerman's book. You know, and and whenever they recommend something, we we assume it's good. So they were talking about this wonderful company that has yeah. uh, beautiful vinegars. So my my son, who's uh, thirteen, who's really into food, discovered this company that makes wonderful nice. vinegars, and it's just a citrus champagne vinegar and a little olive oil, also California olive oil, and salt and pepper. That's how I dress. Pre I mean, I use a variety of vinegars, but just basically olive oil, salt, and pepper. So that it had a simple dressing on it, and that was it. Sounds delicious. Sounds very good. It I was. had sausages my end as well, so we're um, we're eating similar. <laughs> yeah, I I, I mm -hmm. have to say, in those thirty three years of vegetarianism, there were not that many things I missed that much, but sausage was one of them. Salami was one. It's all the cured meats, actually. Bacon, salami, really? sausages, you know, <laughs> uh, and 
And it's really nice. I'm really enjoying having some of those, you know, prepared type meats, sausages and ham. Yeah. Yum. <laughs> so happy to be eating that again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I want to, to dive to start with into um, part of the scientific side of the book. Yes. And you're talking about how we're just overwhelmed with facts. Um, made me think of how it's possible for people to just pick facts out of wherever and put them in front of us and for that to seem like it's the truth. And you talk um, for quite a long time about a UN report called Livestock's Long Shadow, which is from 2006. Right. Whereas a lot of the statistics often quoted about beef come from. And you let us know in the book that the UN later published revised figures and people just seem to ignore that. And then you go into really great depth on each of the claims in that book and show that that information just doesn't stand up at all to scientific scrutiny. And, you know, listeners can go and have a look at the incredible research you've done them. But the most important thing that came out of the scientific part of the book for me was the phrase that's often quoted that, that you originally coined, I believe, which is, it's not the cow, it's the how. Yeah. And it was clear that to to me reading it and that you believe that industrial farming is just abhorrent environmentally socially spiritually on every level but that well-managed cows can be part of the solution they can regenerate our soil they can solve our water issues you know reading about what cows can do to our land that I just didn't know before I read your book it it astounded me and it it feels like we've strayed so far from that model yeah and yet you're doing that there on your farm and I wondered if you could give us some of the the highlights of how you're managing the livestock on your own farm and how that's a world away from the beef that people imagine is causing our problems yeah well first to comment on this question of these sort of global reports they're really problematic because of this very concept of it's not the cow it's the how so the how is incredibly varied wherever you are and you know from one farm to another and from one you know geographic region to another what people are doing is and even if you look at one individual farm or ranch what they will do from year to year can vary dramatically and and actually it's that flexibility that is that creates the opportunity for incredibly of regenerative, truly regenerative and sustainable farming. So you need to have that individual specificity for every little piece of land and for every different year and enable and empower the people on that land to know how to do their farming and ranching in such a way that it's truly regenerating the land. And the the key approach is to sort of model natural systems and to try to, you know, uh, shift with what's happening and make your operation truly in sync with nature. But what they do for global reports is they will sample, you know, or study a few areas, and then they will generalize that for the entire globe. And that's how all global reports are done on agriculture. So it's a really, really serious flaw that exists in all agricultural research, and there's really no way around it. (laughs) But what... I think is really compelling is that when you look at, there are many examples from around the world of areas that were poorly managed and then were managed better 
and the results are dramatically different. And Alan Savory, the wildlife ecologist who uh, spends time both in the U.S. and in uh, Zimbabwe, um, but is originally from Zimbabwe, he has demonstrated, and other people have as well, but he's become very famous for doing this. He has shown places where it was completely barren and desertified and dried out, and he's used livestock to bring life back to those places. So that that's what's so compelling, is showing on specific places how you can completely bring the life in the water back to an environment when you have well-managed livestock. What we're doing on our own ranch, which is here in Northern California, is we are attempting to manage our livestock. We, ju we really just have cattle and then we also have, um, right now we have chickens. We've also sometimes had uh, older, we have older variety breed um, of chicken. We ha have also had turkeys, older um, heritage turkeys. Uh, but basically, as far as the grazing animals, right now we just have cattle. We've also had goats here at different times because it's very helpful to have multi-species if you can. Mm -hmm. And to try to mimic the impact that the wild grazing animals would have had here over the centuries, over the millennia. And there were many wild grazing animals in California, historically, and in prehistoric times. But most of those are gone now. And so we're attempting to use the, the domesticated ruminants as kind of the proxy for the wild ruminants that were once here. And what, what we're basically doing is managing their movements and not much else. You know, we're trying to um, replicate that that uh, that system of the animal having an impact on the land and then leaving the land and letting it rest. And that resting piece is really important. So you need the impact and you need the rest. And that's basically what we're doing with our cattle is um, moving them in kind of careful and deliberate ways to try to mimic, um, uh, mimic that movement. It was really interesting to, to read about Alan Savory because I'd heard the name before I read your book but I didn't really know about the work he'd done and I kind of spun off watching YouTube videos and reading about him after I'd read your book and to hear of the work that he'd done actually regenerating soils it it brought up such incredible kind of enthusiasm and passion in me in that you know we have all these problems and yet the solution isn't to cut this out there, there is someone who's done such amazing work and that you, you know, you're modeling that work on your farm and there are other people who are doing this too, to actually bring back the soils to life, which is, is absolutely magical but, and not using any form of chemical, you know, just using an animal that is, that has been grown, you know, has um, been looked after in that area, you know, in, in the land, on the land that you've lived on for thousands of years. It's just, it's so simple and yet <laughs> yes. so complex at the same time. And that's kind of my next question, which is you, you say very often in the book that we've lost kind of the nuance in this discussion. And there's one bit where I think you say for every complex problem, there's an answer that's clear, simple and wrong. <laughs> and one of the things I resonated so much with the, with the book was that sustainability is complex. I know from my own just decisions about what to buy and 
how to prepare it and cook it in my kitchen, I've had to hold a lot of nuance and be able to, to look at different systems and kind of understand how they're working and be able to, to kind of navigate the territory. And, I, and I'm just buying the food, you know, I'm not growing it, I'm not looking after animals. I think as humans, we want things really clear and simple and then we can put it in a box and we can forget about it and we can get on with the rest of our lives. And I feel like that fuels the mentality of, oh, I hate what's happening to the climate and I hate industrial agriculture. I want to do something, so I'll give up meat. But yeah. as your book clearly points out, the alternatives to not having meat in our agricultural system can lead us down a path that's just as harmful as industrial agriculture and certainly incredibly more harmful than, than well-managed beef. And I wanted you to, to talk to the idea of how how can we bring more nuance into this debate how can we wake people up from from it up to it being it is complicated you know and yeah. help them hold that nuance and its difficulty so they can make a more informed decision about what they eat yeah well if people are looking for slim you know sort of simple solutions i think the key is to think i, re I really to me there is a single pillar that is helpful and that is what would the earth have looked like over time? How did it evolve? And then how can we sort of reestablish the conditions that are more similar to, because humans have had such dramatic impact, right, on the globe, especially in the last few centuries. And so I think thinking of the long-term history of the earth is really helpful. And then similarly, thinking in terms of our own physiology and how we evolved and you know, it's said that we, we've been eating meat in some way for about three million years, it's believed. And so if you think about, you know, sort of just that idea of how, I mean, my father was a history professor, so it's kind of uh, probably normal that I would think this way, but it, to me, it really helps sort of simplify the solutions, which are, what would the earth have looked like before there was such dramatic human you know, impact on it? And then what would our diets have looked like before we had this sort of huge industrial you know, complex that covers so much of the earth that creates so much of the food that we eat now? And in both of those cases, you see how the animals are a really important part of it. And the whole, you know, my thesis kind of is that the more I thought about this and the more I've been working on this for about 20 years now. And I've realized that I think the fact that the, so many humans live in urban areas now, and especially in the industrialized world, in the United States, it's about um, only about 17% of the population lives in rural areas. And so people are really living in, you know, places of concrete and metal and asphalt now, you know, and we're not, we're, we're very disconnected from how we would have lived for almost all of human history, right? And so we don't even understand natural systems. But when you start trying to dig into that, you realize how everything in nature is interconnected and complex. And the animals are part of this kind of three-part uh, equation, which is always about fungi and uh, plant and animal. And they're all interconnected. And whenever you try to look at farming systems that are truly in sync with natural systems or really look like natural systems they have 
uh, animals as a key component. So when you try to think of solutions and you take animals out, you know, you're automatically making a truly regenerative system impossible, in my view. And so if you think about it like that, that's helpful. I think that's the, that's the simple solution. <laughs> but how do, we, you know, how do we create that in farming systems? And then in the diet, if you, if you think about um, how do I you know, make my own diet more in sync with what I, you know, me as an organism has evolved, how, you know, how did I, um, you know, this physiology that I currently have after you know, millions of years of evolution, um, we have really eaten, I mean, by some estimates, we've eaten like 80,000 different substances around the world. So it's a very varied diet. It's lots of different things. And it depends very much on where you are. And, you know, and then in our case now, we're also mobile. We've all moved around. But maybe what our, you know, what our ancestors were eating, I think is a really important thing to consider, as well as where we currently live and what's um, grown and living there. But basically, it's so much about what did the, the, the physiology that we currently have, what does it require to run well? You know, like if you think of a machine, our cars, you know, need, you know, oil and gas, unless they're electric, and then they need electricity, you know, but, but they also need other things, you know, they need to be maintained and taken care of. And our bodies also have certain basic inputs. And when you look at the value that meat brings nutritionally, it's very clear why it's so important to a healthy diet. So, you know, I don't think you have to be an omnivore, but I certainly think an optimal diet is an omnivorous one. Thank you. That's so, all of that is just so fascinating and, and it's reminding me of how um, Joel Salatin always says, one, there's no such thing as an animalist ecology. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> true. I mean, you just have to yeah. look at your own garden. If you know anyone has even just the tiniest plot, yeah. I, I had this uh, interesting moment. You know, where I was. This was back when I was still a vegetarian, and I, you know, I've never been someone who opposes meat eating, but I was not eating meat myself for a long period of time, and. I always have a garden and several years ago I was clearing the garden in the spring, you know, sort of getting ready for planting. And I realized I was just causing an absolute Armageddon there. I mean, there were so many little animals living there, right? And I was destroying their ecosystem by yeah. by creating my yeah. you know, readying my garden beds. And it just really dawned on me that you know, whatever size or shape of animal you're looking at, they are everywhere in the ecosystem and we are going to be disturbing them by creating our own food, you know, whether it's a strawberry or a wheat plant, you know, or a pig, whatever we're, whatever we're creating. So it, it was right. one of those moments where I thought the challenge for all of us is to create food systems that look much more like ecosystems. And that's, that's a much more... Mm -hmm difficult shift that we need to make, but I do believe it's an essential one. And it's also really interesting in what you just said that you came to that conclusion by participating in the system. Like you said, most of us, what, only 17% of the U.S. Is yeah, but even those, but in that 17%, so even most of them are not raising their own food. I mean, people have gardens and so forth. Oh, but, yeah. So it's really only about 1% of yeah. Americans that are in any way directly involved in farming. Although there's gardening, of course. I think Gosh. gardening is is that right. link that much more, mm -hmm. you know, is much more accessible mm -hmm. for people to food 
production, right? Creating your own food. But yes, I think not, not raising your own food is so much the reason why there's such a disconnect now between, you know, understanding yeah. these more complex ecological and nutritional issues and our own, mm. the way we eat, you know, the way, especially in the industrialized world. Right. Well, the other thing that Joel Salatin says that you reminded me of was that people argue, well, animals are inefficient. And he says, yeah, that's the whole point. By nature, they're inefficient. And that's why they help the soil so much because they're leaving all their inefficiency on the yeah, that's a- <laughs> <laughs> I know Joel. He's, he's been to our house before and I've met mm-hmm. him several times. And I like him very much. He has a great way with words, but I never heard that quote before. So I'm gonna I'm gonna use that. I like yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, what's 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 fascinating about nature? Uh, I heard um, that Leonardo da Vinci was really interested in this concept that, that that so it's so economical. It uses everything. There's you know there's this sort of um, connectedness of everything. And there's something in nature that uses everything. So there really isn't any waste in natural systems. But but our human-built hmm. systems are extremely wasteful. And the way modern agriculture works, I often think, is much more like a mining operation. You know, you're sort of trying to extract things from the earth, and then you have a byproduct that you use and you don't worry about anything else. You know, you don't worry about the impact of the land that you've extracted from or sort of trying to, you know, attend to whatever, you know, uh, recycling the waste product somehow into back into the system. It's, you know, you create waste and it's waste that can't be used back into the system the way modern agriculture works. Because, you know, there's so much, chemi- you know, application of chemicals and it creates and it actually will, in many cases, pollute water systems and erode earth, you know, the soil and um, and it creates air pollution. I mean, there's just so many problems with it. But the way nature functions is something is always eating <laughs> Whatever there is. So even methane, for example, um, one of the things I learned in my research for defending beef was that termite mounds uh, are are a really good example of how nature deals with things like methane. So you have um, termites that are like little tiny cattle because they have the same way cattle do. They have a complex... Uh, set of microorganisms in their own guts, their little tiny guts. <laughs> uh, but microorganisms are very small, so they, they can occupy the gut of a termite or, you know, a cow. And But they work exactly the same way. So the way cattle will eat grass, which is basically just cellulosic vegetation that, you know, most animals, including humans, cannot utilize. But the microorganisms in the cow's gut can break down grass. And similarly, termite guts uh, have these microorganisms and they break down wood. And that releases methane, just as it does when cattle eat grass. But termite mounds are populated very heavily by microorganisms that eat methane, okay? And so it's now realized in recent research in the last couple of decades, that termite mounds probably don't uh, off, you know, put into the larger environment much, if any, methane because everything is utilized that's created as far as the methane. So nature has this perfect system. It evolves things to consume 
whatever someone else creates in nature. And that's why it's so important for us to try to understand nature and to try to function more like nature and make systems more complex because the industrial way of producing soy or anything, you know, wheat, um, strawberries, you know, if you look at those fields, they're basically, for the most part, biological deserts. Mm. They're monocultural. There's one thing, you know, the land is basically cut open, some kind of seed or something is applied, and then there's usually chemicals and often water added as well. And then we try to get our one thing out. But in doing that, the plowing and all of the chemicals are basically trying to kill off all other life. And in fact, they are killing off all the other life forms and just trying to produce that one item. And that is exactly the opposite of how nature works. It's the complexity and the diversity that creates the regeneration. And reading your um, your prose in the book, it's just, it's so clear how miraculous it is, you know, the way that you you explain all the different kind of levels of how cattle um, interact with the soil and regenerate the soil. It left me feeling like an incredible respect for the natural systems that you know you're talking about. And I really get the idea of, you know, the closer you get to them, the more connection you have with that land, the more respect you have for it, the more you want to be able to make it sustainable. And so, you know, the process of our industrialization over the last couple of hundred years has moved people away from the land into cities and towns. And at the same time, it's kind of the genesis of us falling into a kind of a food system hell because it's not only industrialized the foods, but it's disconnected us from seeing and being able to have that beautiful respect for the miraculous system that is nature. Yeah, and ironically, even the people working the land, you know, have have kind of um, largely succumb to this idea that nature is something to be thwarted and subverted and that we are to extract value from land and that's it. And, but it's very interesting if you talk to people, people in the regenerative movement, there are so many people that have these stories of having grown up or on a farm or having gone to college and being taught about all the chemicals they needed to use in agriculture and all the machines they needed to use. And then returning to their farms and doing all that and and at some point having the realization that they were essentially focusing on killing the life. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like Gabe Brown in North Dakota, someone who I've also had the pleasure of spending time with several times. He 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 says so well, he says he used to lie in bed every morning and think about what am I going to go out there and kill today? <laughs> you know, which which uh, fungus, which which uh, undesirable plant in quotes, uh, you know, which, uh, you know, which uh, insect am I going to kill today? And and that as he moved towards a regenerative system, everything is so different because he's not focusing on eliminating the living organisms on his his farm. He's focused on um fostering life and diversity. And he um, went from raising just two crops, corn and soy, to raising dozens of different plants and animals. And his experience was that the more animals that he added to his system, the more life that his system produced. And I think that's just a key concept. Um, But these are, you know, it's a difficult... um, 
idea to think how do we how do we transition to that but i think there's a lot of energy behind this now within agriculture as well as you know in the greater public this idea that we have to really remake the way we're producing food and almost kind of you know not abandon obviously we obviously have to continue to use the structure that's in place for the time being but to really in a pretty dramatic way shift to something very different than what is currently the dominant model and there are many good examples of this being done around the world so we have we have models that we can follow and um and i think that's the urgent task you know before us yeah completely you alluded to being vegetarian um and you were vegetarian for like yeah 33 years, years. Mm-hmm. and 33 years wow and you also Part of that time was while um, working on your husband's ranch. Yeah, well, it was, you know, as I mentioned, I was never someone who th- believed it was morally wrong to eat animals. You know, if that if I had that, I could not have married Bill Nyman, the founder of the Nyman Ranch Meat Company. <laughs> but um, I was more in this mindset of, well, um, you know, I accept the, you know, the appropriateness of eating animals, but I'm personally going to make a choice not to do that. And that was more just based on my own feeling of discomfort of taking at the life of an animal for my own diet when I felt, you know, it's not necessary. That was kind of the core of, you know, I think the basis for my decision. And over time, as I was living here on our ranch in California and preparing food, especially once we had children, we have two boys, um, and I and I believed in feeding them you know, the foods that I thought were so important for healthy development, which certainly include meat, right? And eggs and milk, cheese, yogurt, you know, all these really good nourishing foods that we get from animals. So I was always feeding all of those things to them. Um, But it really, for me, was the moment where I turned 50 and was really thinking about um, what do I, I want to make sure my diet is optimal, right? I don't want to be going down this pathway that is so often the case in, you know, again, the industrialized world where we are, um, after age 50, we begin consuming a battery of uh, medications <laughs> to keep us quote unquote healthy. Um, and that that's mm-hmm. our approach mm-hmm. to, um, you know, trying to stave off, you know, the ravages of age, right? And I thought, no, I actually want to look more like you know, the wonderful, these beautiful pictures I have of people in, you know, hunter-gatherer societies where the older people um, look older, but they also still have their basic vigor about them. And um, and I did I did quite a bit of research about hunter-gatherer societies actually for my books because there's a kind of a myth that, you know, life was nasty, brutish, and short, you know, in the hunter-gatherer society, and that, you know, the modern, industrialized, settled way of life is so much healthier. Um, It turns out that there's a fair amount of science and history now showing that the hunter-gatherer people, and those remaining on Earth that are truly still following their, their traditional diet, you know, I'm sure I'm sure you all talk about this and, and are very familiar with this, but it's it's you know, there's a lot of um, good data showing that they really don't suffer from the chronic diseases that modern humans have. And it and it really dawned on me that as I was 
reaching the point where I had needed to start, you know, worrying about the effects of aging on my health, that I needed to make sure that my diet was not contributing to any problems that I might have. And I've always tried to eat healthfully and I've always been pretty health conscious. My parents were, and so I was, you know, reared that way. Uh, but I just sort of clicked in my mind that meat was so valuable nutritionally that if I took that off of my own plate voluntarily, that I was choosing to have a less than optimal diet and that that was foolish. And, uh, and when I began eating meat again, the first thing I ate was a, a, a hamburger that my husband prepared for me from our own, you know, beef that we had reared ourselves. I had, you know, was born and lived for its entire life here on our own ranch. Um, it, it was something that was incredibly delicious and satisfying right away. And um, I had worried that I might feel some regret if I began eating meat. And I felt just the opposite. I felt relief because I had been denying myself something that I sort of knew intellectually was really nutritionally valuable. And now I was giving it to myself. And so I just felt, mm -hmm. that I just felt like this is delicious. And I'm also so relieved that I'm now feeding myself what I actually believe that I need. And I've been eating meat now for a couple of years and really enjoying it. I think a lot of our listeners mm -hmm. will resonate with that kind of relief of being yeah. you're feeding yourself something Definitely. that you need so many people have reached out to me and said i i've been denying myself these these kind of ancestral foods for so long yeah because i thought they were bad for me or i i thought i had to do something differently and the the sense of completeness and satisfaction that one gets when one starts to actually feed oneself again is is amazing well and it's odd because it's sort of like um We've been, you know, there's a weird kind of groupthink that happens in, you know, kind of in the modern industrial age in terms of how information is passed around. And when you start saying things that go against the flow, you know, of this dominant narrative and, and this idea that, you know, the foods that we're generally consuming on a daily basis in the United States and other industrial parts of the world, that that's that there's something fundamentally lacking there you know we've been told for so long that there's this basic you know dietary pyramid or plate that we should be following and it has these different components and it has these sprayed on vitamins <laughs> and so that we're supposedly eating healthier now than ever you know compared to the history of humanity and when you start to say, well, actually, no, <laughs> and people, you know, a couple thousand years ago were eating, generally speaking, especially in hunter-gatherer societies, much more nourishing foods. You know, you, it, to some people, it sounds like you're a lunatic, right? But the reality is, it's actually very sensible, you know, because of what we've been talking about today, this idea that, you know, we evolved for a very, very long period of time with you know, with these basic elements. And we're now eating things that are incredibly different from that. And I recently, um, just a few months ago, there was an article in the Journal of American Medical Association saying that in the United States, children between ages two and 18 are getting about two thirds of their calories from ultra processed food. I mean, that was, oh my gosh. Uh, yeah, that was the reaction I had too. It's a startling figure. 
And when you think about how your body,、um, you know, your body's ability to find what it needs in those foods、um, is, is so obviously going to be harmed, right? Versus、um, just、um, really focusing on foods that are very rich in nutrients themselves, you know, not sprayed on <laughs> vitamins, which I'm really skeptical of. And I'm even more skeptical of taking pills and you know, other concoctions to supplement your diet. I, no, I should not say people shouldn't do that at all, but to, have, to, to really focus on this idea of getting your nourishment from your food and with things that the food、mm-hmm. contains itself. And when you start thinking like that, you see how important the foods from animals are. Hey there, thank you for being a listener of the Ancestral Kitchen podcast. It means so much to Allison and I when you post a review on Apple or Spotify or share about the podcast in your stories or send us a message and let us know what it means to you, which is hopefully something good. You can also sponsor the podcast through our Patreon account and help Rob buy weird gadgets to edit out my coughs and microphone bumps in the background. We have a variety of different levels you can choose from and A bunch of different benefits you can enjoy, ranging from additional interviews to video content and downloadable goodies. Check it out at patreon.comslash ancestral kitchen podcast. On the subject of nourishing and nourishing foods and feeding your kids, that is something that is interesting to me because I'm a mother and we have a small farm with, you know, about five different kinds of poultry. And You have, you have kids and you talk about cooking and that you, know, you love food and you want to nourish yourself and your family. And I know that for all of our listeners, that resonates. So I was just wondering if you could comment on、um, you know, you do a lot. Yes. <laughs>、um, so if you could talk about that, please. <laughs> well, you know, one thing I just want to say、I've, I think the whole question of how we feed ourselves and trying to you know, balance.、Um, The amount of time we spend in the kitchen and all the other things we're all doing, because we are all so busy now, right? Because I, Bill and I talk about, my husband Bill and I talk about this a lot. Like, we have gotten to this weird place in our society where we think、uh, we should be super busy at all times <laughs> because we can be, right? right? Because again, there are. Zoom things and there are, you know, airplanes and, and, um, <laughs> You know, their phones, cell phones. I think, I think phones in particular make us feel like, you know, if we're sitting and waiting somewhere, we think we should be looking、mm-hmm. at our newsfeed. You know what I mean?、Oh、we're just、gosh. constantly thinking we should be doing something, and we're doing way more than we would have done normally. I mean, I just think about my own childhood and what, you know, activities I did as a child. Versus what kids are doing now in terms of how many things they're signed up for and how many places they're shuttled around to. And so, a lot of what I'm always striving to do with our family is to try not to do too much、uh, because I just think、Excellent. the temptation is so great. And it was one of the weird、uh, kind of silver linings of the, the really severe COVID times. I mean, we haven't left COVID, but when we were really under it at the beginning for the first year,、um, we were all forced, you know, our, our, where we live was one of the first places in the United States. In fact, I think it was the first place to institute a, a stay at home order. So we were literally staying at home and not even leaving. We weren't、wow. even supposed to go out at all unless you were getting groceries.、Um, 
And we did that for weeks and weeks. And, um, and so we were just here all day, every day, you know, the four of us and our animals and our plants. <laughs> and, and I just thought, you know, at first we were all like, oh my God, how will we survive? Everything's canceled, you know, everything, you know, there's no theater, there's no, you know, baseball, there's no, all this stuff. And, and it, all of a sudden it sort of became this wonderful time that I'm, I'm sort of convinced we will look back on and say, wow, that was pretty amazing because we returned to, um, just having to, um, you know, play board games with one another <laughs> instead of rushing off to baseball practice, et cetera. And, um, and so, I try, you know, we have a garden, we have a ranch. Um, I cook pretty much all of the food that we eat here. Um, and we try, we have a lot of, we're sort of fortunate we have a lot of neighbors that raise food as well. So we get a lot of our food from the local community. Um, we also shop at grocery stores and many other places as well. But I try, my um, approach is to try to do the best we can. And that is what I encourage everybody to do. You know, every one of us, and I certainly include myself in this, can do better as far as um, getting um, healthier food and cooking more from scratch and raising our own food and raising more of it. But to just view this as a process where we're sort of continually, you know, a journey where we're moving towards food that's more delicious, more nourishing, more like what we should be eating. And then not to stress about the details. You know what I mean? Um, if you're, if you're eating a Lara bar or something, which is, you know, probably the best of the choices of the, you know, the energy type bars, which I generally totally avoid. Um, but if you're going to eat one of those, it's okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? Versus right. eating, you know, some nuts and dried fruit or a fresh fruit, which I think is a much better choice in general. But on, you know, bottom line, I've realized so many people nowadays are so worried about, um, is it okay to do this? Is it okay to, you know, occasionally get takeout from the restaurant or even to eat fast food, which I avoid like the plague. But um, yes, the answer is it is okay. <laughs> do your best, you know, get get what you can, raise what you can, get what you can from your local community. Um, raise food if you can, cook as much as you can, and then do not um, beat up on yourself if you can't be perfect because you won't be. You know, and I, I, I'm sure both of you are the same way. I make a lot of effort, but I'm far from perfect. And I've, I've decided that, that, that idea, um, that we, you know, you should, like I've heard, you know, speakers say, never eat a banana again or something like this after, you know, giving this speech about how terrible bananas are for the environment. And I agree with so much of what they're saying, but then the never eat a banana again part, it's like, nah. I don't think so. You know, um, I, I think um, there are some things we should banish from our, you know, our plates. Like, I mean, our, our diets like styrofoam. You know, I mean, I really believe that we should all avoid that like the plague. That's not a food, but, you know, it's something we so, so often see in the food system. But as far as the daily life, I think the approach is just try to... Um, view, focus on the pleasure of food and the nourishment of food, and then try to find the food that is the most delicious and nourishing. 
and and then enjoy it. You know, enjoy seeking it out. Enjoy creating relationships with the people that are raising it and um, and learning new ways to prepare it. And I also, I find that talking with the people that are raising the vegetables or the, you know, whatever I'm getting from a farmer, um, talking with them about how they like to eat it and prepare it is often really helpful. And, and just view it as um, something that is an adventure rather than a duty or a chore. That pleasure of food thing, that's why, as well as enjoying the scientific side of the book, I enjoyed the later parts of the book because it's really clear that you know, you, you love what you're doing and you love eating and you love feeding your family. I do. I actually and joke it, it around should, about this. We should this. enjoy it. <laughs> I, I, I joke around that my, my, um, my siblings and I, I have three siblings and we're all very, we love to eat. And um, I think this you know, came from our parents who are that way. And I always joke around that when we get together, but this is absolutely true. When we get together, when we're eating breakfast, we are discussing what we're going to be preparing for lunch. <laughs> this, is, this is how we, you know, this is a big part of how we live. Um, but we, you know, we, our parents um, brought us we had a big garden growing up and my mother baked and cooked a lot and made her own yogurt and did all these things and brought us to local farms very, very often to gather our own. Um, we did a lot of you pick, you know, gather our own mm. fruits. And um, and so we had this idea, you know, forever that um, just getting the food directly from the source and then um, making food together and eating it together was mm. a big part of what makes life enjoyable. And so I think part of what I do try to convey in the book is that we we can't forget about the importance of that pleasure. And actually, it's interesting in the vegan movement, I have so often I've had a lot of interfacing with vegans and vegan writing over the years. And one thing I've seen is there's often this suggestion again and again that um there's something uh, sinful almost, they don't use that word necessarily, but about enjoying food. <laughs> if you're enjoying eating, you know, that's a sign of weakness on your part. And I just so strongly reject that. I think our own bodies are hardwired to enjoy foods that are good for us. And we trick them a lot of times by giving them these modern industrial creations, which, you know, kind of mimic the foods that our bodies are craving, right? But they're not really providing it. Uh, but when we are eating truly nourishing foods, they will satisfy us in a very deep way that the modern processed foods will never do. And meat, I have discovered through my own long journey with vegetarian and back to meat, is, um, is deeply satisfying. And, uh, and we're not, I don't think we should be ashamed of that satisfying feeling that we get when we eat meat. It's a signal, you know, it's a signal to us that we're giving our bodies something that it needs. Amen. I feel like the, the two themes there, like not, not feeling ashamed of eating like that, yeah. is so important for um, the people who, who follow the work that we do, because yeah. very often that's in the forefront of their minds but also the idea of doing what you can because right. <laughs> it, it's really easy to think that I'm not doing enough you know mm -hmm. how, how can I do more look at what's going on around us it's I've just got one voice I've just got you know my my family's purse what can I do and the idea of not 
being overwhelmed by it all. And like you said again and again, do what you can. That's really important. Yeah, do your there's, best. Um, <laughs> there's one bit uh, at the end of the book where you talk about um, how you you really don't believe that the government or any politicians are going to make this change that we need in our foodways. And you say that rebuilding will happen one farm at a time. And I feel like that reflects how the, the passion that Andrew and I feel about starting in the kitchen and going out from there, you know, looking at where your food is coming from and going and supporting your local farmer. Um, and I wondered if you could talk to how we as individual you know mothers and fathers in kitchens can outcompete the big kind of media politicians industrialist voice how can we get our message out there more how can we create the change that we need and bring more power into our own hands yeah well i think the problem with uh, this whole movement and in this you know the solutions is getting people to feel that it can be changed. You know, there's this feeling that this is the system that we have. It's so mm. huge. You know, this is this giant system of food production and food processing and distribution. Um, that and it's and it's also inevitable. People feel a lot of times, well, this is the only choice. And I always like to say, well, this is really a you know, a system that we have because of a lot of human choices that were made. And I think there's more understanding now than ever that this is um, so much the case because of large corporations and certain individuals that were really seeking, you know, to sort of create a lot of profits for themselves or their shareholders. And so we have a system that is designed for profitability, you know, for certain individuals. But it's really to the detriment of the land and of the food and ultimately our health, right? So how do we undo this, all of these human choices that were made? And I think actually the the solution is multifaceted. So I do think we have to demand that our governments do things about it. So I do encourage people to take citizen action, you know, to talk whatever whatever level of government they're interfacing with about, you know, for example, I'm on the school board of our little tiny school here, and there's a very high level of awareness in our community about farm to table and eating nourishing food. And, you know, cause we're in the Bay area, so it's very much kind of in the, you know, the mainstream here. But also we are in a, sort of an agricultural area. So there are lots of farms right here. And so there's a lot of interest. But I've realized that our, our school food is not that great. So I've been working as a school board member and trying to improve that and improve the school garden. There is a school garden already there, but how do we make that more of the basis of the food? So we all have these ways we can be you know, citizens in, in our communities and nationally. But I also think we all have a role as people that are buying food and preparing food and feeding our families or feeding ourselves in in going out and seeking better sources of everything. And again, I don't encourage people to beat themselves up and say, oh, God, I can never shop in a grocery store again. I can never buy, you know, processed food again, whatever. Obviously, we're not going to go, you know, from one day to the next into a completely different place in, t in terms of how we're procuring our food and preparing it and eating but to just begin to look for opportunities. So I often give the example of eggs. I think if you, it's very easy if you really look um, to find someone 
in your community, in almost anywhere that you live, you can find people that are just have a small backyard flock of hens that are actually raising them outdoors and, and have some extra eggs, you know? And if you look for someone like that and you begin buying your eggs there instead of at the grocery store, or maybe sometimes at the grocery store and sometimes at that place, if you can find it, um, that's a great first step because you begin to realize when you have those better eggs, how much better tasting they are. And you can just look at them when you, well, even the shells on the outside are often beautiful in different colors and they're varied shapes and sizes. And you can see it's much a much more natural product. And when you open up the egg, you can see this darker colored yolk. And when you eat the egg, you can taste something that is noticeably superior in terms of the eating experience. And so I think that's a way in, right, to beginning to think of how do I find better food and and buy it and bring it into my home and eat it and have that be more and more the basis of the diet that we're eating on a daily basis. So I think, um, you know, there are many things that need to change to really make the food system more nourishing and regenerative, but we can each look for small uh, improvements that we can make and um, and start there, you know, take these little inroads into um, improving. And I'm sure your listeners are already well on this journey for the most part, but um, there are lots of, uh, you know, for example, in our community, I, I began um, interfa- interfacing with people that are uh, fishing and um, we do some bartering with uh, the people who bring fish from our you know, local waters um, to shore, and we barter with our meat and other things um, to get some of their fish. And uh, that's how I get almost all the fish that we consume. And I do the same thing with eggs and even with vegetables. And um, I, I know our situation is a little unique here, but every community has those kinds of opportunities where you can seek people that are producing things and raising things and then get it directly from them and you will find, I believe, that the the uh, the effort is worth it, and then you'll want to do more of it. Yeah, that feedback loop of feeling good about it, yeah, and then that makes you want to do more. Mm-hmm. That's real. I, I'd vouch for that. 100%. Exactly. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> thank you, thank you ever so much for writing the book and that second edition. Um, the work you put into to update your book it was um, a really wonderful read. We've got a copy of it to um, to give away. Andrea, do you want to explain what the details of that are? Yeah, so anybody who wants to get that copy of um, Nicolette's book, just hop onto our Instagram today through the 26th and um, just follow the instructions. <laughs> Simple. Thank you. Where can people yeah. find you, Nicolette? Where do you um, kind of put your work out? Well, I do have a very... Part? I have a very active uh, Twitter account at Defending Beef, and um, and I'm also on Facebook at Defending Beef, and um, and those are kind of the main platforms. I usually post something almost every day, just about sustainability and food and cooking and you know regenerative agriculture. I just like to uh, you know help keep the conversation going. I have uh, people I'm connected with from around the world that are involved in food and agriculture, and uh, just kind of have a lot of exchange of ideas and information wonderful is there anything that you'd like to add that um we haven't asked you before we let you go well i guess i just 
want to bring back this idea of the pleasure of eating and how much joy it can bring each of us. I think we're so focused on convenience and speed, right, that we, you know, often think that it we don't have time <laughs> to seek out the foods in our local community or to prepare it, to cook. And I think if we, you know, we sort of have to carve out the time. You know, I, I really, really saw this during the pandemic when people were looking much more at local food sources and much more at cooking and baking. You know, there was this whole movement to make sourdough bread <laughs> among a lot of home bakers. People who'd never made sourdough bread were, bread were doing it a lot in the last couple of years. And I just think um, it is worth it because it's it's something you know it's something we might have to take some time away from other things we're we're rushing around so much and if we do a little less rushing around and we do a little more slowing down and just finding simple delicious ingredients and making simple nourishing foods i think it will make all of us happier and healthier. So I would just encourage, I know, you know, I'm always working on this. I'm not, uh, again, not perfection. <laughs> I still do too much rushing around, uh, but I'm, I'm trying very hard. And I think that's a good uh, idea for all of us that are interested in food and health. Yeah, completely. You're making me smile. So that makes me want to do more, less yeah. rushing around and more being in the kitchen. Yeah. Exactly. Andrea, do you want to add, you, you add anything, Andrea? No, that was beautiful. Wonderful. Well, thank you ever so much for your time, Nicolette. Oh, the, it's um, my pleasure. It's an absolute wonderful read, and I'm going to go off and read your um, pork chop book now as well. <laughs> Good. Great. <laughs> thank you. Yep. Wonderful. Thank you very thank much. You. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to continue the conversation. Come find us on Instagram, Andrea's at Farm and Hearth and Allison's at Ancestral underscore Kitchen. Until next time, we both wish you much fun exploration and satisfaction in and out of the kitchen. Bye.